Hello and welcome to The Current Thing with me, Nick Dixon, where we talk about the culture war, politics and anything else that might come up. And we are in danger of becoming the official Reform UK podcast because we've just had the delightful Belinda de Lucy and now we have the man himself, the leader of Reform UK, the top dog, the top G, it's Richard Tice. Thanks so much for doing the show, Richard. Nick, great pleasure to be with you. Thanks for asking me. I feel very privileged following Belinda's footsteps. I mean... What more could one ask for? Yeah, she was very good. So you've got a lot to live up to, but I'm sure we'll do it. The only thing actually I got criticised for with the Belinda episode was that it was too much of a party political broadcast. So I might be a bit tougher today. I probably won't be full Andrew Neil, but I'll, you know, maybe I'll be a bit tougher. But actually, the person who said that said they're still going to vote for reform. So I got you one vote already. Oh, marvellous. You're Every, welcome. We'll, we'll count them all one by one. Yeah, yeah. I hope it's not. I hope it's not that bad. But um, I'm sure what you're going to do well. So um. Quick softball question then to start with. Like, why did you get into not only politics, but the Reform Party specifically? And even more specifically, you wanted to be leader. So I've always had an interest in politics really since actually sort of university days. And I mean, I grew up in the world of business, real estate, but I've just had a, uh, it was one of my hobbies, really. I just always uh, took a great interest. I did politics at A-level, did rather badly in that, actually. Uh, but I did much better in economics. And I really got stuck in around the, the mid to late 90s. I was recalling just the other day that I actually wrote to Gordon Brown back in 1997, uh, a three-page letter as to why we should not join the euro currency. And I'm very glad that he listened to me. And I did actually get a reply from the Treasury. So look, I've always had an interest in it. I've always had an interest in, in particular the issue of being a sovereign nation state, the quality of decisions made, the quality of leadership. And that was one of the things that really concerns me about uh, the EU, why I then became so keen on ha- having a referendum and, and, and voting to leave the European Union. So look, it's been an ongoing interest. Uh, I've been lucky enough to be successful in business. And I always had a view that at some point I'd try and give something back and see whether or not I could shape and influence events. And one thing led to another. I was for, for a long time a member of the Conservative Party. I actually resigned in 2012 uh, in horror at what I then thought was a rushed and strategically flawed uh, strategic defence review by Cameron's government and just some of the austerity cuts they were imposing. <clears throat> and I said I would rejoin them when Cameron left. Uh, but one thing led to another, and of course, they completely failed on uh, trying to deliver Brexit. So, uh, and I set up the group called Leave Means Leave, which became post the referendum the lobby group for trying to make sure that we did actually leave and that we left properly. And that was the precursor to the Brexit Party, which obviously Nigel Farage set up. I was its chairman through 2019. We, without question, shaped and influenced events. And then the big question after that was, was what to do next? And should we trust Boris to get on with it and do as he said he would do? Or should we keep a watching brief? And then COVID hit and you never quite know things. But my, my uncle in the property world, he had a very simple expression. He said, Richard, if you want to be in the deal, you've got to be in the room. And the same applies in politics. If you want to shape an influence, you've got to be at the table. You've got to be on the ballot paper. You've got to be putting forward your views. And uh, so we always had a, there was a big debate as to whether you should keep the Brexit Party name or move it forwards. And I've no doubt at all we made the right decision because you've got to look forward to the challenges of tomorrow. And in a sense, the, the Brexit Party was a name of its time. But in so many walks of life, so many aspects of life that affect millions of people, it's actually much bigger than than the Brexit issue. So that's why reform is such a, I think it's such a, a critical name that it's a bit like the old WYSIWYG in computing terms. What you see is what you get. Mm. The country's got multiple challenges. We'll talk about those. And in many, in many senses, reform is needed throughout the whole way that the UK is 
is run, managed and, and led, frankly. Yeah, I wonder if the word revolution is, is more what we need, but that perhaps sounds a bit too lefty. That's a, um, that's a, bit, that's a, bit, too, <laughs> a bit too radical, a bit too, too dramatic. Yeah, fair enough. But so, the, the key thing is that you've got to have a seat at the table. And democracy works best for the voters, for the people, when there are more options. The big challenge for UK politics, and I think this is why so many people sort of out there saying, well, I, I don't really like either of the main two parties. I feel politically homeless. And you know, understandably, we're a new brand. And like any walk, any new brand in any business, charity, sector, whatever, it's, it takes time for, for people to hear about you, however much money you have or haven't got. And so people are gradually hearing of the name reform when we're making real progress. Two years ago, no one had heard of us. We're at zero in the polls. Here we are. And we're polling third or third equal largest political party, eight, nine percent. In some regions, we're at 10 percent plus. So we're the party with momentum. People are, are looking at what we've got to say, what we stand for. And I, I knew we were making progress the other, the other week when someone who was considered himself left of centre, he said to me, do you know, Richard, I'm really troubled. I read your manifesto, your sort of uh, policies the other day on the website. And... It worried me that I actually agreed with quite a lot of them. And in a sense, that shows that actually a lot of what we, we say is, is just common sense solutions to the, the problems that we all face. Yeah. And by the way, you said we've, we're the party with momentum. That's another word you can't say, of course. Got to be careful. That's another lefty. No, They've I, appropriated I, I'm, it. I'm very happy. I, I like that word because it's it's moving forwards. It's It's got a sense of action to it. And, and I'm a man of action. I'm not a man of, of waffle and sitting around. Okay. Well, it's it's quite um, bleakly funny that you left in 2012 the Conservative Party for sort of what now seems to me a relatively minor reason because it's so much worse now, I would say. <laughs> and, um, yes. And just on that point about polling, you, 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 I've seen recent polls where you're at 10 percent. And of course, this is without even Farage being involved, you know, who has, you know, his name recognition and so on. You have some name recognition, obviously, but it's like people, it's, as you say, it's a new brand. But still, that's incredibly impressive. And that was partly to do with the collapse of the Tories, well, the implosion around Boris Johnson and then Liz Truss, the kind of double coup, whatever you want to call it. And then it seemed like that was the time for reform to come in. Now, has that slightly dampened down with the sort of Rishi doing kind of reasonably well and sort of he's doing okay-ish? Look, we had a huge surge of increase in support when the Liz Truss government essentially collapsed and we could track it daily the growth in members and interest and donations from when Kwasi was sacked and Jeremy Hunt was appointed, when Liz Truss was uh, dismissed, and then the mini budget that Hunt put through, and then the lawful immigration numbers that came. We could track all these points. And the, the truth is, nothing's changed. Yes, Sunak's, in a sense, calmed things down, but he hasn't actually done anything. No one knows what he stands for. Uh, there's a lot of, of talk, but that's what the, the the Tories are always good at. They're good at talking. Mm. But where's the, where's the action? Where's the delivery? And it's easy to forget. We've had 13 years of this talk and waffle and spin. And the country's never been in, in a worse state in, in living memory. We've got the highest taxes for 70 years, the highest government spending ever. Uh, we've got regulations, nanny states, we've got the lowest growth decade, we've got the lowest growth forecast that any of us can remember. Wow, they're excited this week when the IMF said, oh, we might grow 1% next year. Big deal. I mean, that's no ambition. It's appalling. So uh, the reality is the country's in a terrible state. We pay ever more in taxes and the public services are declining. And I say to people, look, we've got to rescue the country. We've got to save the country. And I, I coined the expression con-socialist Tories because that's what they are. They stand for high tax, high regulation, low growth. Well, that's the same as the Labour Party. There's two sides of the same socialist coin. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of how reform would actually tackle that, and I've had a bit, bit of a look at your manifesto or at least what you've got on your website, and the sort of key bullet points are lower taxes, secure borders, cheaper energy, zero waiting lists, obviously meaning the NHS. But there was some criticism 
when you released something in, in January where Steve Edgington tweeted that Reform UK launched a 2023 plan this morning. Immigration was featured on the third slide and was the 16th bullet point. And I had a look at your manifesto and it was still sort of down at page 20. And I'm just wondering, is this an attempt to kind of appeal to sort of, you know, lefties, centrists? Are you kind of sort of not foregrounding the social conservatism and trying to sort of say, hey, we're just the competence party? Look, there are multiple challenges facing the country. Immigration is a, a really significant one because it impacts uh, life in many, many ways. And I'll be making a very significant announcement uh, this Saturday at our spring rally, our biggest ever event. We've got some 800 people coming on uh, both lawful and illegal immigration. And look, it's, it's incredibly important. And... I think people will like what we have to say. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of keeping the powder dry. So those who are listening, uh, listen up to what we've got to say this Saturday at our spring rally. It's, it's very significant. But there are, uh, over and above immigration, which, as I say, impacts on many, many things, both lawful and the appalling illegal immigration. And we're the only party with a clear, bold plan that would stop the boats. Uh, there are you know, we've got to face into the the other issues. How do you get the economy growing again? How do people keep more money? How do they pay the bills? How do we get energy down? And so on and so on. Mm. Uh, but on, as I say, so uh, watch this space on lawful immigration. But our policy on stopping the boats is a clear six point plan, which uh, would stop the boats. I know it works because it's what Australia did. I've literally copied almost word for word what they did with a couple of exceptions. And that's it. Point, the first point is you've got to declare a national security threat, which you're entitled to do under the UN 51 Convention, Article 9. Only this week we've heard about ISIS terrorists amongst the hundreds of criminals that have been coming over. I'm the bloke who uh, broke the story about the Albanians last August. So I'm doing a lot of that. That's the first thing. The second thing we've got to do is lead the European Convention on Human Rights. You've got to make sure clear that uh, nobody who comes here illegally will resettle here, absolutely zero. Uh, you've got to set up offshore processing centres and do it properly. That's the fourth thing. And the fifth thing is, look, the Home Office is broken. It's not fit for purpose. You've got to set up a whole new department of immigration staffed by people who believe in the cause of secure borders, knowing who's coming in, knowing who's going out. Not rocket science, but that's what's got to happen. And then the sixth and final thing, which we're entitled to do under existing international legislation, is you've got to pick people up out of the dinghies safely and take them back to France. And the moment you do that, you stop the whole business model. It's game over. Literally game over. That's our version of what the Australians did, which was the pushback policy. And it worked for them. It would work for us. We're entitled to do it under existing law. The French might be a bit grumpy and they can take it to the international courts. That might take a year. The problem would have been sorted within a fortnight because there's no business model. You're not going to pay five grand to be picked up in a dinghy and taken back to the French shores. Literally game over and we're entitled to do it. So we've got a bold, clear plan and uh, on illegal immigration. And then, as I say, uh, we'll be making a very significant statement this weekend on lawful immigration. All right. Well, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, some former military people have said to me, just put them back in France. But I think you're the first politician I've heard just go for the sort of drop them back in France approach. So, yeah. And, and I've, the thing is, you see, uh, I've read all the international treaties that are relevant to this. I've got the clauses. Now, if I can do it, why can't Suelle Braverman and a competent lawyer do it? Why can't Priti Patel and a competent lawyer do it? The reason is because the Tory politicians, they seem to believe the nonsense that they're told by their senior civil servants. That's not good enough. Yet if you've got conviction, if you've got courage, if you've got leadership, then you find good people, you work with them, and you get the job done. The British people want this stopped, and they want it stopped now. Yeah. So, okay, so we'll, we'll let you explain on Saturday the, the point on, on, as you say, lawful immigration, because for many people, that's probably the primary issue rather than the boats. No one likes the boats issue, but it, it's a radical increase in immigration post-1997, particularly you know, radical, very fast demographic change that even sort of fairly lefty liberal people are a bit worried about. And, you know, it's, it's, it, that's a huge problem in, in many ways. But I'll, I'll let you speak about that on, on your rally then. But the, um, 
the the other point you raised there is just is just why can't they get it done? I think this is what a lot of people wonder, and we cover stories on headliners on GB News all the time, where the theme is Swella Bravman screams into the wind while her department does something she expressly doesn't want them to do, whether it's a woke training, whether it's police going into a pub for six, for six police to pick up fifteen gollywog dolls, or some absurd example. And it always seems that she's saying this shouldn't happen, but she doesn't seem to be in control. And and this this is uh, pertinent to the economy as well because. You've said, uh, for example, that we must grow our way out of the crisis. And absolutely, that seems a perfectly good idea. But Trust wasn't allowed to do it. She tried to go for growth and she was basically ousted in a sort of blob coup. So how, Richard, do we tackle the problem of the blob, the, the stopping actual it's, elected politicians doing anything? It's incredibly simple. Again, it comes back to courage and leadership. I come from the world of business. I run a big multinational stock market listed company which is just outside the, the, the largest 300-odd companies. And if I gave an order, then I would expect it to be carried out. And if it's not carried out, I'd have the person in the room seeking an explanation. If it's not good enough, then they'll get a warning. And if it's not good enough, they get fired. It's very, very simple. And it should be exactly the same in the civil service. There's no reason that the quality of accountability and performance, in fact, it should be greater because it's taxpayers' cash as opposed to shareholders' cash. So look, uh, you, you've got to make it clear to these people, get it done or get out and I'll get someone else in who will get it done. And bringing on to the issue of Liz Truss, look, government spending has never been higher. It's a third higher than it was 20 years ago or so, at around 45, 47% of, of GDP. Back in the early Blair years, the Tories did actually hand over a very robust competent, well-run, relatively well-run country in 1997. And uh, the size of the state was about 35%. So we've got to drastically cut the size of the state. And the first thing you do, again, we're all doing it at home or in, in our businesses. We're saying, we look at our budgets. There's a cost of living crisis. We're saying, wow, I need to save five quid in a hundred. But I've still got to put food on the table. I've still got to pay the critical bills, which means you've got to make some savings somewhere. Well, what I would say to every manager of every single spending department in every Quango, local authority, government spending department, hey, folks, you're going to save five quid in 100. And if you don't, you're fired. Right? It's their job to do it. They've got to find the savings. They've got to cut out the waste, but they're not allowed to touch in the critical frontline services. And guess what? That's quite a lot of money. It's 50 billion quid. Right? Uh, so this can be done. That's 5% of, of, of all government spending. Here's another thing. Uh, we've now got a, a record number of people on out-of-work benefits at about 5.2 million people. That's one in eight of the working age population of this country that are being paid to sit at home. Now, we all believe, of course, in a decent, compassionate society that we have a safety net that protects the vulnerable, that looks after the genuinely sick and disabled, but uh, that should not become just a lifestyle choice for people who can't be bothered to get up in the morning, get out, get on their bike if necessary, and get a job. And we're told there's a whole shortage of labour and big business wants to import cheap labour. Well, maybe the answer is that we need, to find, we need to make work pay in the UK. And that's why at the beginning of this year in my first press conference that uh, Steve Edgington criticised, you know, the point is, you talk about different policies at a key moment in time. And we've, to make Britain great, you've got to make Britain work. And to do that, you've actually got to make Britain, you've got to make work pay. Mm. And that's why our critical economic policy is to lift the threshold before you start paying income tax from 12 and a half grand a year to 20 grand a year. That's an extra 30 quid a week in the pockets of everybody. That's real cash. That frees up 6 million people from paying any income tax whatsoever. The Tories want to do exactly the opposite. They've frozen the thresholds. So they're going to drag in another three million of the lowest paid over the next three or four years into paying income tax, which is absolutely appalling, completely the wrong thing to do because benefits are tax free. So if you increase benefits by the rate of inflation at 10 percent and it's tax free, don't be surprised if a whole load more people suddenly realize that they're better off net at the end of each week going on to benefits. So what you're seeing, I heard it the other day as an anecdote. In a northern town, there's a shortage of taxi drivers because a lot of them have worked out they're better off going on benefits, claiming back pain, but being able to drive 16 hours a week. They'll take home net more money than if they drove for 40 hours a week. This is insane. 
Yeah. Absolute insanity. It's a huge... It links into the immigration policy. It links into training. It links into the level of wages. You've got to make work pay. The moment you get a job, you've got to be net better off than being on benefits. This is not difficult stuff to comprehend. But the Tories have gone exactly the opposite direction. If you get a million people off benefits, that's 15 billion quid, give or take the odd billion, a year. Mm. Yeah, and I sympathise because I was on benefits in my troubled youth, followed some bad advice. You get on benefits and then it's very hard to get off because, like you say, you're incentivized not to come off. And it's, humans are built for survivals. It's very hard for someone to say, I tell you what, I'm going to get up today, make my life harder, make it more unstable, actually, by getting a job. And actually, when I could just get more on benefits, so they should obviously radically incentivize work because it takes extraordinary character to suddenly say, tell you what, I will make my life harder because spiritually this will be better for me to have a job. And some people do do that, but it's very hard at the moment with the current system, as you say. So, so you think, because some people say, how can we have growth? We've got low birth rates. We've got an aging population. But you're, but you're, as in, so how can we have growth without immigration? But your solution is just to maximize our current latent no, if, workforce. If, there's a huge amount of lost, wasted talent. And for those on benefits, the reality is many of them are trapped on benefits. And you've just given a good personal example. But we've got to incentivize and motivate people because the reality is there's a huge amount of, of, of wasted talent within that. And it's better for individuals, for your own mental health. It's better for your family. It's a better example for your children. It's better for your local community. In every sense of the word, you're better off. And so it's got to be a, a safety net as opposed to a lifestyle choice. But the Tories have removed loads of the conditionality around it. Uh, the Department of Work and Pensions has utterly failed in this. We've got a million and a half more on benefits now than pre-COVID. And it's just, it's completely wrong. And, and I've just got to say, look, we're on the side of the workers and the strivers, uh, but I've got no time for the shirkers and the skivers. And I'm not saying everyone on benefits is that. There is an element of that. And there's an element of people who are trapped in it. And there's got to be some carrot and stick, uh, which has got to be made very, very clear. And if you get if you get two million of those people off benefits, that's 30 billion quid a year. That pays for the vast majority of our tax threshold increase. So there's huge savings to be made everywhere by uh, making the UK work and perform. But it requires proper leadership, proper accountability. And sometimes, do you know what? To make an omelette, you've got to break some eggs. OK, well, I um, economics is not my strong suit. But you did say when you're talking to Peter Whittle that we have these amazing assets in this country. So I'd, what I, I, my broad understanding is we're a sort of tertiary service-based economy. So what, what are our amazing assets as a country? Sorry to interrupt this excellent episode, but we have a quick word from our friend Harry Willis. So if you're trying to lose weight, which I pretty much am all the time now, I think that's how it is past a certain age, or you just want to get fitter and stronger, then you need our man, top fitness transformation and health coach, Harry Willis. Now, Harry is guaranteeing that if you work with him, you'll lose five kilograms in your first five weeks or he'll coach you for free until you do. That's 11 pounds, which is almost a stone. Harry will design bespoke plans for you, your workouts, your diet. He'll work one-on-one -on -one with you the whole way. And I've seen him get amazing results with some of our mutual friends. And they are very, very impressive. And you can find Harry on Instagram at Harry underscore Willis or Willis-coaching.com, W-I-L-L-I-S. Just quote the current thing when you make contact. And he's offering a free 45-minute consultation for anyone that does. So it's at Harry underscore Willis on Instagram or www.Willis-coaching.com. Now back to the show. Look, first of all, actually, it's people. Uh, a nation, any business or any uh, country, its greatest assets are its people. But we've got to, you've got to motivate that people and you've got to, you've got to incentivize hard work. You've got to incentivize risk taking. You've got to make work pay, as I've just been touched on. Um, the late uh, Lord Nigel Lawson obviously just sadly passed away. But in the 1980s, he and Margaret Thatcher they transformed the UK all of a sudden by making work pay, by cutting taxes, cutting unnecessary regulation, incentivizing success and reward and risk taking. And guess what? We had high growth for a couple of decades as a result of it. Um, but under the last decade or so, the Tories have been raising taxes, raising regulations and growth has declined. The two are completely linked. So the key asset of the nation is its people. 
but you've got to create the right framework for your people to thrive. And you can talk as much as you want about education and skills and all of that, but just keep it simple. Make work pay. The moment people see they've got more pocket, more money uh, at the end of the week, end of the month, in their pocket, and that the harder they work, the more they'll keep, do you know what? All of a sudden, uh, there's a huge amount of progress. And look, we're leading, look, happily, we're leading longer, happier, healthier lives, which means people can work uh, much, uh, you know, much longer through their life. And with, with Zoom and all this stuff and technology, um, older people can carry on working. There's all sorts of opportunities. So look, I, I believe that we've got, we've got great hope, great opportunity, but you have got to trust the people. You've got to unleash that talent, unleash that incentive for work. If you pay people too much to sit at home, then don't be surprised if, uh, if that's what happens. And it's very simple. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Hmm. Okay, because well, we talked about hope there and the, the assets of the country, maybe I'll ask a question. I like to ask a lot of guests whether our country is basically finished because I wrote a Substack article basically saying it was nickdixon.substack.com. A lot of the young people I speak to particularly have a, a sense that, for example, they, they're never going to get a house. You know, I, I, I knew a, I, was, I was speaking to Callum on another podcast. He, he does the um, show Lotus. He is, and he, he went to places like Afghanistan. He went to Russia. He's traveled all around the world. And he's kind of, it's called dark tourism. And he came back and he said to me, do you know what, Nick? Those places have got some problems. But in, in, in Britain, I can't even buy a house. I've, I'm 27. I've saved my money all my life. He lives in a, a cheap area, low rent. He's done all the right things, but he can't even see a chance he's ever going to own a house. And that's obviously just one, one example. So uh, Reform Safe, the first words of your manifesto, as a nation, we have so much potential, so much we should be optimistic about. We can make Britain great again. But you've also said that we're heading towards this waterfall where it's kind of over. You've even said we're uh, within a decade of the whole thing being lost. And I don't know if you mean socialism, if you mean anarchy in the streets, I'm not quite sure what that meant. But, but I'll, t- I'll tell you exactly what it means because it links to what I've been talking about, about making work pay. And that's a great example, traveling around the world. But fundamentally, we can turn this round. The analogy I use is that imagine all of us, we're on a boat on a calm lake and the, the bloke at the front is, is the prime minister and the bloke at the tiller at the back is Jeremy Hunt. And the issue is at one end of the lake, there is a, there's a waterfall and these two are steering the boat closer to the waterfall. Now, it's, there's still time to turn the boat round. But the problem is when water and a boat goes over a waterfall, you crash on the rocks below. You ain't coming back. It's over. And I don't know how close we are to the waterfall. It's somewhere between. It's, it's, it's not longer than a decade. It's not tomorrow. It's not a couple of years. But we are... Uh, we have got to turn this boat round. It's doable with our cure. Uh, fundamentally, you've got to make work pay. You've got to uh, get the economy moving. But you've got to make us competitive, which is important to bring us on to energy, because this is one of the other the big debates of, of the day. Uh, we've got some of the highest uh, energy prices in the world, despite being one of the lucky enough countries to touch on assets. We're sitting on absolute decades and decades and decades worth of our own energy treasure that we all own. Oil, gas, shale gas, coal, lithium. And yet the eco-zealots believe that we'd be better to leave that locked underground and import uh, energy from overseas. And it's a catastrophically foolish uh, policy. It's wrapped up in this, these words, net zero. And it's making our country poorer. It's making us colder. And cold old people die early. So this policy is not only, in my view, financially negligent, it's actually criminally negligent. People are dying early because of this insane net zero policy. It's, it's, again, I use an anecdote. If, if a long lost auntie, the last thing she does for you, Nick, is she says to you, I'm going to hand down my house. And by the way, there's some treasure under the floorboards of the house equal to the value of the mortgage of the house. I couldn't be bothered to dig it up and use it. Right? I'm pretty sure the first thing you'll do is get a clean screwdriver, carefully lift up the floorboards, take out the treasure, pay off the mortgage, and carefully replace the floorboards with, uh, with your screwdriver. The analogy is the same with our energy treasure. The value of our energy treasure is equal to the value of the national debt, for heaven's sake. So we could use that. We could have cheap energy. And if we use our own energy, we save 
CO2 emissions. Importing CO2 from America or the Middle East creates three to four times more CO2 than using our own gas. It's insanity. And here's the thing. Think about what happens. So when you buy energy from overseas, you buy a, a, a bunch of gas, you send them your cash, they send you the energy, you then burn the energy, right? So you've kept warm for a week, great. Then what? Where's your money? Your money's overseas, you've got nothing, you've burnt the asset, and your money's not coming back. So it's catastrophically, economically daft to carry on doing this. We're importing five millions of tonne of coal from all over the world, South Africa, from Australia. We've got a century's worth of the stuff under our feet to use in our steel industries, and so on and so on. So look, um, we've got to use our own energy treasure. That'll make us much more competitive. It'll create jobs, it'll keep our money here. Westminster's net zero policy, for the reasons I've just outlined, is net stupid. And the only zero, if we're not very careful indeed, will be the amount of money in our children and grandchildren's bank accounts. Yeah. And one example that particularly bothered me being from Cumbria was the Cumbria coal mine. Absolutely. Because like, you mentioned steel and coal. To you. It's like we're going to have to import it from China or something. It's actually environmentally worse and you don't want jobs. And even like Keir Starmer, an alleged Labour Party, doesn't want jobs for northern people. I mean, you could barely make it up. He doesn't want mining jobs for northern workers in the left. It's kind of hilarious. But yeah, I took it personally because it's, it's, it, they said it was an embarrassment, some people even on Sky News, that we were going to open this coal mine. So it's very frustrating to say the least. But with net zero then, what do you think the motivation is? Because... You know, there are all kinds of speculations, but is it just they're captured by this climate ideology or is there something more sinister or is it stupidity? If, if, if you don't understand something, follow the money. And there is so much money in the green lobby, the eco-zealots. People are making off like absolute bandits. Take the offshore renewable energy industry. They're receiving, uh, renewable energy in general, they're receiving over 11 billion of annual inflation-linked subsidies. They're, they're making money hand over fist. They're not even filling the contracts they sign with the government. There's another 5 billion of network operating costs. That's over 15 billion. That's 500 quid per annum per household in additional costs that we're paying others. Well over 80% of our renewable industry is owned by overseas investors and hedge funds and sovereign nations. So again, we're sending all this money overseas and as a result, we've got much, much more expensive energy. So look, it's a combination of virtue signaling. It's a combination of money. And other nations around the world are literally laughing at our naive stupidity. We represent less than 1% of global emissions. We've legally committed to get to net zero by 2050. Only 17 countries or so have legally done that. The likes of China. Funny, isn't it? How they've sort of said... Yeah, we'd like to make progress towards uh, reducing emissions by 2060. You know what will happen? We'll get to 2051 and we'll have impoverished ourselves. China will have taken lots of our jobs and our money. And then they'll look back and they'll laugh at us and say, well, that didn't work out very well for you guys, did it? So we better not do the same. We'll just have lots of cheap energy and cheap being, keep being really competitive and taking your jobs and money. Thanks very much. So yeah. that's what's going on. And... Uh, it's, it's utter insanity. There's a reason. Uh, let's remember also that, yes, we all want to reduce harmful emissions, but CO2 is plant food. It literally, without CO2, there's no photosynthesis. Without photosynthesis, there's no plants. And without plants, we're all dead, literally dead. And CO2 levels are relatively close to multi-million year lows. So there's a huge... Uh, misappreciation. And there was a fascinating video the other day. Uh, US senators on a important Senate committee, uh, they were asked by someone, what percentage of CO2 is there in the atmosphere? They had not a clue, even though they were supposedly intelligent elected representatives talking about climate change. And they guessed at around five or seven percent of the atmosphere is CO2. The answer is 0.04%. These people are clueless. Most people are utterly clueless. And so we're the only political party that will stand against net zero. 
against making people poorer and colder. And it's a, do you know what? The vitriol that we receive on this subject is worse than we received on Brexit. Worse. And there's a reason for that. It's because of the, it's just follow the money. There's so much money involved in this green lobby. And it's a redistribution from poor people to uh, certain vested interests. And we're going to call it out for what it is. Mm. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, I do a lot of work for the Daily Skeptic, so preaching to the choir on this one, because that's one of our big things is climate scepticism, but, or, you know, around the, the mainstream climate narrative. And if you're on the BBC or something, you're not even allowed to give the other side pretty much, because that's seen as misinformation. So it's a huge challenge actually getting the information out there to, no, to and, counter and the narrative. And don't anybody dare call me a, a, a denier. Climate change has always taken place for, for millions and millions of years, and always will. And I remind people, so what happens when we get to net zero? Let's say the whole world gets to net zero tomorrow. Even the IPCC's own report says the thing that people are most worried about, sea level rise, if you got to net zero tomorrow, it wouldn't have any impact on sea level rise for somewhere between, they do say this with high confidence, which is reassuring, for somewhere between 200 and 1,000 years. I mean, it's just insanity. Yeah. We'd be much better to spend a few million quid on some carefully targeted sea level defences and adapting with a bit of air, air conditioning and technology and so on than, than trying to uh, prevent climate change when actually there are much greater factors like solar variability, sea level oscillation, volcanic activity that most people have never heard of and don't understand that have a much greater impact on climate change than um, greenhouse gases from CO2. Yeah. Okay. So in conclusion on that, you just basically think it's, it's, it's financial interest. You don't think it's the Klaus Schwab and the WEF, or perhaps if it is, it's the same thing. It's just, they're just another part of, of, of this sort of lobby. No, I'm, I'm not a fan of the WEF at all, uh, but I think uh, it, is, it is the global elite who found ways, the vested interests, they can all scratch each other's back and make huge sums of money. They can fly around in private jets. But he, he, again, follow people's example. And the fact that the likes of John Kerry, uh, he, he, he has a, a seaside home and he flies around in a private jet, I'm pretty sure that tells you he's not worried about sea level rise and he's not worried about CO2 emissions. If he was, he wouldn't have a private home uh, on the sea and he wouldn't be flying around in a private jet. Yeah, and also the, he didn't wear a mask on the jet while we all had to allegedly wear masks. Not that I did, but um, okay. So here's a, another big question I like to ask, which is, how we win the culture war. I mean, and also maybe as a side question on that is, is where reform actually stands on some of the moral issues because I've talked about Christianity on this podcast, for example, with Winston Marshall. And I don't know, it, like one of the big problems we have is that is in my opinion, the decline of Christianity, the decline of the family and so on. Though I, when I hear reform talk, they sound perhaps a little bit more like materialist Thatcherites so I've given you two questions there, but where do reforms stand on, on these basic moral questions, the decline of Christianity and so on? And also, how do we, assuming you're on that side of the culture war, how do we even win this thing? It is really important. And what I say is that we need to reclaim uh, traditional British culture and pride in it and belief in it and uh, British values, uh, which, which are all linked around the tr traditional Christian values of, of decency, of compassion, of, uh, of fairness. And I think that's incredibly important. You know, I mean, having said that, um, I mean, I'm, I'm a Christian, I wear it relatively lightly, but we don't really do in the UK religion in politics, not like in, in some other countries. Um, but I think that the reality is, whatever faith one is, or of no faith, I think should have no bearing on how you think a country should uh, sh should be run from a um, from a sort of a, a, a governance point of view, from the, the quality of your public services and all of this. What it has a bearing on is is just that that sense of what's your history, what's your heritage, what are your beliefs, and I just think that we've lost our way morally. We've been we've again. The Tories have been in power for 13 years. They've allowed uh, woke ideology to hijack so many of our institutions. And we've got a situation where a generation of young people and, and the next generation of, of children coming through are in danger of being uh, essentially 
uh, growing up uh, as as snowflakes who are not robust, who are not resilient, and uh, are not used to accepting that you get some knocks in life. Uh, and so that brings us on to something that we feel very strongly about, which is the education of our children. And I talked on it, I touched on it last week on my, uh, my radio show last Sunday, Easter Sunday. And I was talking about the traditional education of teaching children how to read, write, count, and uh, do things like history and science and other important things as opposed to what's happening, which shouldn't be happening in schools, is things like lessons on gender questioning um, and uh, having lots of drag queen in, in, uh, in lessons and things. And, and we absolutely stand rock solid firm against this because uh, I think it's, it's really, really uh, important. And to talk about this stuff with children in primary schools or in their early teens when... They've got all sorts of things going on with their bodies anyway. I think it makes children anxious. I think it confuses children. As such, I think it's damaging to children. And as such, here's the crux. Unlike Rishi Sunak, that thinks, oh, let's have an urgent review on this stuff. Uh, and his definition of urgent is, please give me a report on my desk by the end of the year, which in civil service language means the end of the following year. I don't need a civil servant to give me a report on this stuff. I know the difference between right and wrong. I can tell you within a week that this is a safeguarding breach under existing safeguarding laws. And if I was running Ofsted or running the country, I would make it very clear to every head of every single primary and secondary school under the age of 16, there is no teaching of this stuff. And if there is, you're in breach of safeguarding, you'll probably lose your job. It's not good enough. It's unacceptable. Hmm. So... So your answer to how we get rid of wokeness from institutions is basically a sort of hardline approach because you spoke earlier about if, if I was in the if I was in government I'd just tell the civil service to get in line hit these targets or you're sacked but we have had people like for example Sajid Javid Sajid Javid seems to have done quite well in business Rishi Sunak seems to have as well and be quite a competent person but they get in there and they find that the blob and I know people in the extended blob like the Bank of England and other institutions and they all hate the Tories and so on they're all sort of ra- quite radically left now well, strangely, even though they're sort of would have been neoliberals not long ago. So it's a very strange kind of they've adopted woke ideology and they're so against the government that they can't get anything done. But how is it that you would you've got a great business background, but so have some of these people. How would it, how would you come in and sort of get rid of wokeness from all these institutions? Because they didn't fight hard enough. I mean, take Sajid Javid, a nice guy. I know Sajid. But the reality is that he he always got turned. He allowed himself to be turned as opposed to. Uh, you know, making it clear who was the boss. And these people were elected on an 80-seat majority. With uh, you, you've, you've just got, in our manifesto, it will be abundantly clear. This is the plan. This is what's going to happen. There is a structural problem which needs to change, which is we should some, have a, a situation where when a cabinet, uh, a new sector of state is appointed, they can bring in 10, 15, 20 senior people from the private sector to help run that department and, and to drive through this stuff. And it should be within our within our, our culture, that if you're called to public service, rather like in the States, it's a public duty. If you've been successful in any walk of life, if you're called to give service for three or four years uh, to, to your country, then that's what you do. And it's a matter of, of patriotic pride. And we should have that here in the UK, whereas instead we've got two like parallel railway lines between the private sector and the public sector and almost very, very little crossover. So... Uh, that's one of the things that I think needs to happen, but it just requires absolute rigid determination. And look, I said earlier, uh, to make an omelette, you've got to break some eggs. And to get this done, a whole bunch of people have to be fired. But it is so serious, and I'm just in the business of telling it as it is. And if you don't like it, frankly, go and get another job. Yeah, so I wonder with the, with the Tories, if they were just too soft or and fail to understand the, the, the scale of what's happened with this sort of stealth revolution we've had, or if they just slightly believe in it themselves, you know, are they I think look, some of them, the Tories are a huge coalition. 
Sorry to interrupt, but I actually have an advert for myself here because I have a massive live event coming up, guys, called The Weekly Skeptic Live, May 20th at the Emanuel Center. You'll probably know I do a podcast with Toby Young called The Weekly Skeptic. It's one of the fastest growing podcasts around. It's actually in the top 1% of podcasts in the world in terms of audio downloads after just 30 episodes. So thanks to everyone that listens. And so we're now branching out and doing a live episode at the Emanuel Center. Me, Toby Young, Will Jones, editor of The Daily Skeptic doing bants, doing serious stories. There's an audience Q&A after. It'll be a lot of fun. So make sure you come. Go to eventbrite.com and search for The Weekly Skeptic or go to dailyskeptic.org and there's a banner at the top. Make sure your ad blocker's off. Click the banner. Go to that event. And it's £25, May 20th. Hope to see some of you there. Now back to the show. Many of them really are social democrats uh, or liberal democrats. They're not actually... uh, They're not of, of traditional conservative with a small c values and that's incredibly important and I think some of this stuff is one of the ways through this you actually got to legislate on some of this stuff in order to protect these institutions being taken over. Ron DeSantis the governor of Florida has done this he's introduced a parents law to prevent some of the nonsense uh, in education go on within Florida and I think we need some legislation here for that but there isn't time we can't wait years to introduce that that's why you've got to declare some of this stuff an immediate safeguarding breach. And that brings an end to it. And uh, so that's really important. And then uh, the other point about the civil service is it's way, way, way too big. Frankly, uh, you know, I'd like a civil service that was, uh, that was half the size and produced double the output. And when you look at some of the, the rise in sickness levels in the civil service and the public le- uh, sector, in the literally in the just come out this week something like 30 35 percent increase in sickness levels from 2022 compared to 2021 but hang on what's going on here that's not happening in the private sector this is just absurd so there's an absolute collapse in productivity directly linked to uh, the uh, the allowing people to work from home and this stuff's got to stop if you want to work from home maybe you should take a pay cut because you're saving a whole load of cash you haven't got to travel into work. You haven't got to buy sandwiches from the local sandwich shop and so on and so on. So uh, there's multiple ways that we've got to reduce the size of the state, uh, reduce the, the nanny state. I knew things were going badly wrong the other day when someone said, oh, um, there's a problem with teaching children to, uh, how to learn to ride, how to ride a bike. We need, we need over a thousand more government cycling instructors. For God's sake, it's up to parents to teach children how to ride a bike or, or, or an uncle or, or a, a godparent or whatever, or a mate. It's not up to the government. And that's a classic example of the nanny state gone woefully wrong. Yeah, we did that story on Headliners on GB News the other day about the civil service sick days, unbelievable. And, I say, you know, and I'm sympathetic to mental health, but I said we do a show full of comedians. If we, if we took days off because of mental health problems, we'd never do a show. So you come in anyway. Comedians. Look, look, mental health, what worries me about mental health is that it's an incredibly serious condition for those who've got genuine mental health. But I think the definition of it has been stretched and pulled uh, enormously. And in a sense, it's been hijacked by snowflakery. Oh, I've got an anxious, difficult day. I've got a mental health issue. And I think that is, uh, uh, we've allowed this to happen uh, just um, sort of, by stealth, so to speak. And I I reiterate, genuine mental health is a really serious um, condition. But uh, for most people, uh, the best way to deal with anxiety and what many people think is mental health is actually, do you know what? Get busy. Get back to work. Get busy. And you haven't got time to worry about all your difficulties. Just get on. And I think we've, we've just got to tell it as it is and tell people you've just got to toughen up uh, life's sometimes life's not that easy, but it's it's a hell of a lot easier here in the UK where we're lucky enough to live than in many other countries. And they seem to get on and they seem to have rather more robustness and resilience. And I think there's a danger that, and this is not just us, there's labour shortages in places like France. I've just been there recently, which proves that it's nothing to do with Brexit. There's labour shortages in America. It's The Western world has become... Um, relatively wealthy to the point where uh, too many people don't need to work and we've become complacent, we've become a bit decadent, we've become a bit idle 
and, uh, and, and there are a whole bunch of other countries around the world who are literally, you know, they're, they're chomping at our legs and they're, they're eating our lunch. And if we don't wake up, then, then frankly, we deserve every, every problem we get. Yeah, and absolutely. And can I just ask one question I didn't get to ask? I know you've got to go quite soon, but I, I didn't get to ask this of Belinda, and it's pretty crucial. It's about proportional representation, which is obviously a big issue for parties like Reform. We've got this two-party system. In my area, Labour are going to win by an absolute landslide. There's nothing I can do. I voted for an obscure Christian party last time. I was like, I may as well vote with my conscience because I'm going to lose anyway. And Lib Dems come second, and they're mental as well now. So you've got... Um, so PR, you've said that it may happen in within a year of the election, and I assume you mean therefore that Labour would bring it in because they want it. But Correct. of course, if they get in with a landslide, they might not bring it in. So, a couple of things with that. One, do you think PR really will come in if Labour will actually do it? And are you worried about PR in certain ways? Because, for example, extremist parties get a foot in, or the Italian uh, Parliament, which I think has thirteen different parties or something. Although you know Maloney's g- doing well now, but for a long time it was in chaos. Yeah, look, 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 but, 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 but hang on, mm-hmm. everyone quotes the Italian example, but actually it's not representative of the reality. The reality is that PR, some form of PR, and there's multiple different forms of it, is used across almost the whole of Europe. In fact, first past the post is a rarity. I think we share it in Europe. The only other country that I'm aware of that uses it like we do is Belarus, which is hardly a shining example of a beacon of democracy, is it, for heaven's sake? And so many people feel politically homeless. What happens is if people don't think you can change, at least you went out and voted for your party. The worst thing is when people say, it makes no difference anyway, the main two parties are two sides of the same socialist coin, so I'm not going to bother. Democracy starts to collapse in that scenario, and that leads to a very bad place. under P- PR, and there's various forms of it, at least every vote counts, every vote matters. You can restrict the uh, the issue of extremist parties by having a minimum threshold at, let's say, 5% before you get representation. Um, but actually, uh, when you've got more parties with, with their own views, whether or not you believe in them, y- you get more debate, you get more discussions, and that has to be better for democracy. And look at, it, look at Italy. Georgia Maloney, who who stood on uh, belief in a nation, uh, belief in family values, uh, and, uh, and, and fundamentally uh, protecting the Italian people, having a sensible, controlled border policy. Uh, there's nothing far right about that. That's just basic common sense that, uh, that actually the Italian people rather liked. Uh, in 2018, she got 4% just after launching the party. All of a sudden now she's approaching 30%. That's the joy. That's called competition. We believe in sensible free markets. Competition's a good thing. It makes everybody perform better. It means the other party's going to have to pull their socks up. Otherwise, she's going to stride forward. And so I think that's, I think that's really important. And I think that it, uh, it takes away the, uh, the sort of the, um, uh, the two sides of the same coin with the existing main two parties that I think is leading people to, to say, I'm politically homeless. I don't know what to do. I'm not sure I'm going to bother. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Maloney was smeared in this country. She was called far right, whereas in Italy itself, she was called centro destro, centre right. And I think that was uh, unfair. But yeah, people have concerns about it. I suppose we're a small C conservative in Britain. We don't know, we're not used to proportional representation. But I think you've made a, a decent case for it there. And I do know young people are thinking it's the only way now because the Tories are so broken. Labour are going to be even worse. I, or you say they can't be any worse, I think, in an interview. I think they could even no, be a bit worse. I, I, no, look, look, the reality is uh, nothing can... It's hard... To, the Tories have failed so spectacularly, you can't reward failure. And uh, I, I, in a sense, I think there's every prospect we get PR within a year or two of the next election. Many people in the Labour Party recognise that it's the way forward. Uh, if they end up in a coalition or a small majority at the next election, then I think they'll be looking to bring it in. It'll be part of part of the post-election arrangements that are agreed. And I think the country's ready for it. I really do. It's very different to back in 2011 when we had a referendum on it. OK. Well, I know you've got to go, so maybe I'll ask... I've got just two more very quick questions. One is the massive area we didn't touch on, but with the NHS... You've actually given a target, which Rishi hasn't done. He's just said he'll get waiting lists down. You said zero waiting lists in 24 months. You're talking about a voucher system. If you can't get seen, I believe it was in three weeks by a GP. You, you go private. And if, if you weren't seen in nine weeks by 
uh, for an operation, you, you get one, you get a voucher. Correct, you go private. And the whole point of that is actually, this is what the Labour Party did in the, in the early 2000s. And they got waiting lists down to very little level. The NHS needs fundamental reform. Of course, it'll always be free at the point of delivery. As it is, by the way, in most Western nations with all sorts of different healthcare systems that are not based on the NHS. But uh, they've got a staffing crisis. We produced a healthcare plan uh, before Christmas, how you retain staff and attract back staff who recently departed. Again, using the tax structure to massively incentivize people. So there's a way to deal with the staff. We've got to set out how to pay for it. But yeah, fundamentally, you've, it's very simple. You've got to put power in the hands of the people rather than the bureaucratic blob that runs the NHS. And the moment you have some form of voucher system, like we've uh, we've talked about, and of course you, there's details to be worked through, then all of a sudden it's the individual, and we polled it, 81% of people don't care who treats them as long as they sort the pain, deal with the agony, and get the job done. So we've got to open up much more uh, non-NHS independent healthcare capacity. And uh, the moment we do that, all of a sudden, Operating theatres will be used at weekends and you build up the capacity and that's the way forward. Okay, and I have to ask because obviously reform was the Brexit party massively associated with Farage. What's it like working with Nigel Farage? How are you different? What do you bring that's different? And will he come back? And what would happen if he suddenly came back? Or is it you now for the future? Yeah, look, I'm leading the party. I'll be leading the party well into the election. Uh, whenever that is, we think it'd be autumn next year. A week's a long time in politics. Two years is a very long time in politics. But look, Nigel's in great form. He's incredibly helpful with supportive advice and ideas behind the scenes. I've worked with him very closely since, uh, well, for four, five, six years now. Time flies when you're having fun. And of course, everybody's different. Thank heavens. We'd, it'd be boring if we're all the same. But uh, look, I think what I bring is, uh, I, I bring... Uh, some fresh ideas. I've got a, a, a very strong focus additionally on economics and some of the other ideas. We're both very rock solid on issues that we've touched on around immigration. So yeah, look, there's, um, there's some many, many similarities, but obviously every, every character is different. Uh, Nigel's one of the most well-known um, uh, politicians uh, almost in the world, actually, but certainly in the in the UK, and uh, you know, on the back of that is, uh, is say is extremely well recognised and and understood. Um, but uh, gradually, reform is we're making progress. Word is spreading. People are talking about us in pubs on the on the high street and just saying, "Have you heard of these people? You look at these people," and uh, that's Rome's not built in a day. But we are making steady but uh, sure-footed progress, and long may that continue. And do you think you can appeal to sort of the average person who perhaps doesn't have a great impression of, of Farage? You mentioned earlier that you, a lefty was saying, oh, I actually like your policies. I think the policies are all pretty much great. Most of them I, I, I like, but, but what if you couldn't appeal to, you know, a sort of normie who's not, you know, that political, you know, you see what I mean, the image issue? Of course, and that's, it's one of the reasons why we changed the name, because... We've got to move forward as a country. We've got to try and bring people together around some common sense policies. And uh, what you see is what you get. I will just do the best I can along with a great team. We've got the likes of Anne Whittacombe and Ben Habib and Belinda assisting and Rupert Lowe. So the team is growing. And most most ordinary sensible people think about politics for about a minute or two a week. <laughs> I know, that'd be nice. And, and um, so... As they hear about us, they'll take a look and, and they'll form a view. But as I say, the key thing is that people hear about us, they look at what we stand for. Some will like it, some won't. That's the joy of democracy. But at least the options there on the table, that's the most important thing. And what people, I, I say to people, what you see is what you get. There's no flip-flopping here. We've got a clear, courageous, bold understanding of what needs to be done to save this country and to make it great again and that's what we're going to try and do all right brilliant well thanks for that richard last last question just because you mentioned him ron DeSantis. are you team DeSantis or team trump i'm guessing you're not team biden i'm definitely not team biden <laughs> it's going to be fascinating what happens and it'll ebb and flow uh, obviously it takes a huge uh, a huge amount of time but 
assuming DeSantis does stand, then although despite what the polls say currently, I think that Republican voters will say who's got the best chance of beating the Democrats. And that's the reason why I think ultimately DeSantis would prevail against Trump if it was essentially a sort of a a two horse race uh, in the Republican primaries. But goodness me, it's going to be a it's going to be a very loud, noisy battle. That is for sure. Uh, but DeSantis's track record in Florida, no one's perfect. Of course, he's made some mistakes and he'll make some more. But his track record of operating in Florida through the lockdown and on things like education, I think uh, uh, is is well worth looking at and deserves a lot of credit. Okay, so I'm, uh, Team DeSantis vibe there. I'm getting, uh, I'm slightly more Team Trump, but all right, fair enough. We had to disagree on something. I hope it was a bit <laughs> bit tougher than the Belinda one. It was still not too tough. And, and, and of course, Nigel's Team Trump as well. He is. But, but right. I think, in fairness, you know, what, uh, what Trump did achieve just before he lost was actually, even those who didn't like him, he achieved so much more in foreign policy terms than anybody gave him real credit for. And one shouldn't forget that. So... Uh, you know, he had his, uh, his his track record of delivery. There was much that, that he didn't. But um, we will see. Watch this space. Yeah, we had North Korea. We had no war in, in Russia. We had all sorts of things. But the image of Trump, he's just the, the, the boogeyman for a certain side. So it's very hard to get out. As we were talking about, image problem. But that's why you're now Reform UK. And you, hopefully you're going to get some there new votes. Are. Maybe we'll get some votes from this. All right. Thanks so much for doing this, uh, show, Richard. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks a lot. Well, that was Richard Tice. Seems a pretty impressive guy to me. But would you vote reform? Let me know in the comments. And while you're here, click subscribe, hit a like. It only takes a second. Or if you're listening on audio, give it a five-star review. Very, very quick and easy to do. Or write a review if you're so inclined. And I'm just going to read one out now. We had a great review here from jwe 22 And this person says, Common Sense is back, becoming one of my favorite podcasts, often reminding me that the establishment are completely out of touch. Very on theme with today's show, I would say. Anyway, thanks for listening, guys. Tell everyone about the podcast. We've got loads of great episodes coming up, and we'll see you next week.